Thanks for tuning in today. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Join me as I seek out the small incremental changes being applied in other industries that we can learn from and that can be applied in healthcare. Can these changes bring immediate value, but also add up to the big improvements and revolution we need in healthcare? Come along with me to explore the possibilities. My innovative guests from around the globe have used small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Richard Safir. He is the Chief Medical Director of Employee Health and Wellbeing at Johns Hopkins Medicine. Rich, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much for uh, inviting me, Nick. So uh, as I do with all my guests, I like to get a little bit of context. You're a physician, clearly. Um, you've got an unusual career, certainly based on the title that you have. Uh, tell us a little bit about your journey to this point uh, in your career and some of the key points that have contributed to where you are now, if you would. Absolutely. I was trained as a family doctor, but before going to medical school, I got my degree in nutrition. And I think that really... Um, you were the one doctor that got that? Just to... <laughs> <laughs> I've actually met like six people in my uh, life, in my in my career, wow. in, in my cohort about 30 years ago who studied wow. the same. Yeah. yeah. But it, it really influenced my trajectory because I realized after a year of practicing, I'm like, this is crazy. 90% of the people I'm seeing, if they were uh, better skilled in how to make healthier choices and less stress, they wouldn't need to see me. So I figured there had to be a way I could leverage my undergraduate education. And I came across some articles um, about what employers were doing to support the health and well-being of their workforce. And I'm like, that's where I think I need to be because I'm seeing patients for 15 minutes and my patients are in their workplace for 2000 hours a year. So um, I think we got things uh, backward a little bit about who's having the most impact on health and well-being. And Nick, it wasn't a straight line. I, I had three jobs between private practice as a family doctor and now the chief medical director of employee health and well-being at Johns Hopkins Medicine. So I, 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 it's interesting you bring up nutrition because that sort of ha it's a recurring theme, certainly in some of the discussions I have with other clinicians, with patients, um, you, you know, it, it's cited as, gosh, I got a one hour lecture in uh, the whole of medical school and that was it kind of, um, you know, it's a terrible failure. And yet, as you rightly point out, you know, all of that contribution and You've now sort of morphed that into let's focus on the employer aspect of that mm -hmm. and and how they essentially hold the attention of their employees because they have them for such a long period of time. Tell us a little bit about the journey and some of the things that you've discovered along the way there. Yeah, I mean, the employer certainly um, sets the tone, the policies, uh, the resources, everything about the individual's workday. And since we spend most of our waking hours uh, working, that this is a big deal. So Nick, um, I went through uh, academics after private practice, then I ran an occupational medicine office, and then I uh, was a medical director overseeing prevention at one of the Blue Cross Blue Shield plans. And in that role, I helped um, advise 1.3 million lives who were working for large employers. And so each of these um, pieces influenced uh, my education and skill set uh, to get me prepared for my role at Johns Hopkins. So I've seen healthcare 
from a private practitioner, from an academician, from a occupational health lens, uh, and as the on the side of the insurer. Um, and so it's a very complicated um, uh, picture, puzzle, let's say, that uh, too often is simplified uh, by an employer to a contract with a workplace wellness vendor. And I think, unfortunately, because so many employers have had unproductive experiences with these wellness companies, that many of them don't believe that they have a chance of possibly playing a positive role in the health and well-being of the workforce. So, I, you know, I've got to be frank, um, as I listen to employers and, you know, their care and concern for employees, not not to be mean about this, but ultimately they're employees and, you know, they think about them as resources. They want the maximum productivity. And, you know, there's this balancing act with, well, if I keep them healthy, then they can be more productive. But that almost feels a little bit counter to the sort of concept of wellness and health. How do you see them balancing it? I mean, are they truly genuinely thinking about employees in, I, I'm sure there are, but I also feel like there are others that are not. I, where do you strike the balance in all of that? Sure. And let's just start out by acknowledging that just as there are some good doctors and some not so good doctors, there are some more informed and enlightened leaders and mm -hmm. some less informed and enlightened and so, I mean, the enlightened ones probably understood prior to the pandemic that in order to have a healthy and productive workforce, there needed to be not only um, health in the sense of biologically healthy, but also mentally well and socially well, because without these different aspects of well-being, um, we're not at our best. And so, Nick, I, I would say that the, the pandemic really accelerated the interest mm. <laughs> in a genuine understanding about how these uh, healthcare employers were going to support the health and well-being of their workforce, and not only to keep them from getting COVID. It really became almost uh, an arms race of attrition. You know, we are losing uh, employees uh, left and right. And how are we going to not only attract new talent, but keep the talent? Because all the other healthcare organizations around us are in the same dilemma. Mm. The workforce options are shrinking. And so um, I think that uh, there has had to be, uh, healthcare employers have been forced into a position to recognize and embrace the idea of what true well-being is. Yeah, and and to be clear, I didn't want to cast shade on everybody. I think you're right. There's there's always good and bad, and I think I I, I always come at this with the principle of you know 99% of the, the population is trying to do the right thing. Sometimes yeah. they end up doing the wrong thing, not intentionally, or you know, partly through the incentives, the misaligned incentives. Yeah. You know, there are challenges there. And as I think about your career and you talked about occupational health and, you know, the, the genesis of that, to my understanding, mm -hmm. if you look back in history, yeah. was the Industrial Revolution. Yes. We saw all of these accidents yes. and, you know, there was essentially the rise of 
occupational health, the unionization to sort of help protect yes. rights. And that created something that I think we still point to as, you know, the source of protection. Have we moved into a different phase and we need something more than occupational health now that needs to oversee this from the perspective yeah. of the employee? Well, I mean, occupational health was a success for a variety of reasons, uh, some of which you mentioned, but I would say primarily they've created a culture of safety. The imperative mm -hmm. to keep employees safe is now common vernacular, mm -hmm. uh, including within the healthcare industry. How much time and energy have we spent on needle protection? I mean, it's been a remarkable journey the next stage, which is underway, is creating cultures of well-being in the workplace. It's more than a program, a prize, or a portal. It is about a culture, the shared beliefs, behaviors, and attitudes of an organization that all point towards supporting employee well-being. So as you think about that from a, a perspective of wellness, and I don't know if this is true, but it always feels true. And, you know, I'm representing my own bias here, but the clinical profession seems most at risk or certainly through the pandemic. They they were the lightning rod for an awful lot of the stressors that took place. Yeah, yeah. We, we see it. I've seen it in my own career. It, yeah. it is a continuing unraveling tragedy. And I can tell you through personal experience now, through the eyes of, you know, new medical graduates, it has not improved. If anything, it's gotten worse for a number of reasons. Yeah. yeah. So we're not doing a good job. No. Or is that just isolated and we are doing, you know, to your point of the good and the bad? Is there good somewhere that we can point to and say, let's replicate that? Well, Nick, I hope we're at an inflection point and we're seeing the lowest uh, moment right now. Because if we're not, um, our, our country's in worse trouble than uh, we want to imagine. So one of the problems, I think, uh, with our healthcare delivery <clears throat> system in the United States is that because it's um, driven, as you alluded to earlier, by the need to profit in order to keep the doors open, mm. uh, many employers have had to scale. Uh, and they've essentially dumped work on nurses and doctors that could be done by um, lower skilled, if you don't mind me saying, um, employees. And it's uh, the burden uh, of this additional work, which is um, unrelenting at times. And so uh, it's not just the employer who's responsible for this. I, I would say state and federal government needs to play a role in the solution so that uh, employers can rightfully staff uh, their workforce so that the, the burden is, is lessened. Uh, that is fundamental to well-being. It's not just about nutrition and not smoking and getting enough steps in your mm. day. It's about right-sizing the quantity and the type of work that healthcare professional professionals are undergoing. And uh, this is a tough period because we know that many people have left healthcare 
and we can't fill the positions fast enough. As a result, the people who remain in healthcare have that burden of picking up the extra work. And so I'll just give you one example, Nick, of where I think um, there could be a big difference. I, I know that there's electronic medical records. Great. Maybe they're working for some people. Maybe they're not. They still need to be recorded. Why not have medical scribes take some of the load? It, it's not that expensive. There are definitely some young professionals who are trying to get experience. It seems to me uh, to be low-hanging fruit. So for those of you just joining, I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Richard Safir. He is the Chief Medical Director, Employee Health and Wellbeing at Johns Hopkins Medicine. We were just talking about the continuing decline in the work circumstance. You brought up something, um, you know, part of my history and uh, certainly some of the things that I've brought to bear on the healthcare system, um, you know, medical scribes. And interestingly, they're I, I I was surprised to discover this, but they are part of the rite of passage in many cases for medical students who go through that as part of their clinical experience that they're asked to obtain as you know the package yeah. when they apply for medical school proves to be actually a very helpful skill set because yes. that means that they're then very familiar with the systems and you know so forth so yeah. actually not not a bad circumstance and um you know certainly providing that support to the clinicians to take them away from the administrative tasks we've introduced a lot of technology into the healthcare setting and i i would say most of it has not produced better flow better working circumstance it certainly improved medicine in many respects. Certainly the information has, but yeah. it hasn't improved the experience. And you talk about this sort of inflection point. There's a part of me that thinks that maybe the inflection point is the the change in the technology, particularly with some of the improved artificial intelligence that we're seeing, that is maybe taking some of that burden away and allowing for automation of those tasks. You think that's going to help or is that just layering more uh, more technology on well i mean we, we want to be careful that we don't take away the roles and responsibilities that clinicians enjoy and then we take the joy out of their work i mean that's the last thing uh we we want to do i think we we need to be more mindful about the tasks that don't require uh, a medical degree or a nursing degree and make sure that healthcare professionals are working up to their degree. So I am not opposed to artificial intelligence. And in fact, Nick, as you know, and many of your readers know, uh, healthcare has deployed artificial intelligence for a, a long time before ChatGPT uh, came to play. Um, but I, I don't think that that's... Um, where we're going to get the biggest bang for our well-being buck. So as you think about this, you've obviously, you know, you've been persistent in sort of trying to address this problem, creating a happier, healthier, more resilient workforce. I yeah. think that's something that we all sort of strive for. The question I have is, what have you seen that's successful? What are the yeah. things that work to allow 
you know, uh, the joy of medicine, which I know is a campaign. I'm sure it probably still exists at Johns Hopkins. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. it, it, I would have called it an oxymoron. I've got to be frank. <laughs> and I think that's a terrible thing to say. Yeah, it is. It but is. It, it should be yeah. because that's why I went into medicine. Right, I'm right, certain right. it's the reason you right, went into right. it. But we yeah. sucked it out. Right. How do you get it back? Yeah. So uh, first, I'll, I'll say that I'm going to give some ideas, Nick. But um, the the few ideas I will give you are really short of a comprehensive roadmap, um, which I, I'd like to share with you at, at mm. some point. But just a, a, a few ideas, Nick. When when we become physicians and nurses become nurses and and presidents of hospitals become presidents of hospitals. Very few people are given training in their orientation on how to lead with well-being, how to support the well-being of those they lead. It's just not even a discussion. So how can we possibly expect leaders of physician groups, leaders of hospitals, leaders of health systems to know what their role is? And I think in my 25 years in this space, this has been the biggest gap. This is why I wrote A Cure for the Common Company, because I wanted to help leaders of organizations, regardless of industry, as well as human resource professionals, know what they can do. Because, Nick, folks like myself and my team, we can't do this alone. And so we have five different training programs at Johns Hopkins Medicine for leaders at all different levels. Some of them are 10 minutes. Some of them are hours. Some of them are voluntary and some of them are mandatory. Some are in-person and some are uh, remote virtual. And this is purposeful, Nick, because different types of leaders have different needs. Mm. We And leaders are busy. We know that. And yet if we don't help train leaders to know their role, they will be running on the proverbial treadmill because every time another employee leaves the organization, it just increases the load for the people who remain. So at some point, we have to slow down and invest so that we can reap the dividends of that happier, healthier, and more resilient workforce so we're not dealing with the turnovers. That I would say is the, you know, obviously came to me first when you asked the question. I got some other ideas, but I'll pause there. So, I, no, I think I, it, it reminds me a little bit of medicine. And, um, you know, I, I imagine you probably had a similar experience of see one, do one, teach one, mm. um, which it's was a little bit of the deep end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one. That's one thing. But I was thinking, you know, when you're going through training, you know, you're, you got this big pecking order, right? And there's no questioning, you know, the top of the pecking mm-hmm. or the pecking, you know, the head pecker doesn't project him or herself is really caring about what you think. Mm. That's a problem. Mm. That's a culture problem. And it doesn't mean that we can't get the work done if the leader shows some care. But we are we've lost some of the human part that most employees, whether you're a nurse, doctor, an IT worker or food service worker, we all have some basic human needs. And one of that is to be respected and be on the receiving end of some caring every now and then. Yeah, it 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 sort of brings me back to one of the things that we did in medical school that 
I, I don't know has been repeated, but it was the most humbling experience I had as a medical student. I had to be a patient for a day. Yeah. And I spent a day on a gurney in chairs being moved from ward to yeah. radiology. Yeah. And there is nothing more just demeaning, quite frankly, than lying on a, a bed yeah. that's being wheeled through a corridor yes. with all this activity going on yeah. and nobody paying any attention to yeah. you and you feeling like, essentially, I, I, I can't describe it any other uh, more eloquently than a piece of meat. Yeah. And it changed my perspective on the experience I tried to deliver I don't see it as much. And I feel like everybody in healthcare needs to go through that, not just mm -hmm. clinical, but all the way through the top. And I've seen that. I've seen yeah. that with presidents and CEOs, Yeah, but it's rarer. Well, that's a, I think that is a great exercise if we're trying to better understand the employee experience. I'm sorry, the patient experience. Mm. But what I would also add, Nick, is wouldn't it be great if leaders uh took their turn at being an undercover boss and that they assume <laughs> the role of different types of employees in their organization now the pandemic created a, a great and hopefully unique and one time only opportunity for this uh, i know this you know this is what we did at johns hopkins medicine we had employees who had covid they needed to stay home mm. that accentuated our challenge for staffing and so different people pitched in in different ways nick i took a turn with patient transport i took a turn in food services i took a turn for environmental services and so did the other people on my team and so did other people who had administrative roles and this is what i learned in occupational medicine when i was running an occupational medicine office for almost four years you need to walk in the shoes of the employees to truly know mm. their health and well-being needs. And I don't think that's done enough. Yeah, you know, it really resonates with me because when I was a medical student, I did that. I worked in the portering department. I worked in the security department. I oh, worked on great. the switchboard, um, you know, and it served me so well when I was practicing because I had just wonderful relationships yeah. as well as true understanding but I, I i hadn't thought about it in those terms i i do use the sort of terminology walk a day in the shoes and i think it reflects the other way i think that's important to uh to understand you know we're we're, we're close to time um if you would tell us where can people learn more about this uh nick uh i have created a richardsafir.com website uh, that includes um, my blogs, some videos, um, and other resources. And uh, one day, Nick, uh, I'll also have a link to this podcast. Um, <laughs> so I hope you'll visit me there or on LinkedIn. And I certainly hope that people will check out the book, A Cure for the Common Company. So uh, I... We'll definitely put that in the uh, materials that go out with the podcast and, and the associated uh, blog post. We'll link to that. Um, as we close out, um, you know, what I'm struck by is we saw this inflection point, I think, with the pandemic. It, it As you described it, it, it accelerated. Things were certainly on the move. It sort of pushed people over the edge. It's interesting you talked about that, your pandemic experience and doing all of those yeah. things. It hadn't even occurred to me, but 
I did. I, I, I was there too in, in, um, in some other areas. And what can we learn and continue to persist into the future so that we can deliver that on an ongoing basis? Because I feel like there's a little bit of this, oh, that was yesterday. We're moving on yeah. to the new problem. Yeah, right. Short-term memory. Well, you know, the organizations that have that short-term memory are, are not going to do well. They will continue to struggle with talent acquisition and talent retention. And those organizations that learn from the pandemic that their most valuable resource are, is their workforce, they will thrive because they will treat the workforce with the care that uh, we deserve. And uh, it will reap rewards for everyone, uh, including the organization itself. So uh, overall, I think we have this uh, tremendous opportunity, obviously, also great challenges. I think, as you described, Richard, um, you know, your website as a resource, uh, both the book as well as all of the resources that are built uh, on there, Richard Safir, S-A-F-E-E-R.com. Um, unfortunately, as we do each and every week, we've run out of time. Um, so it just remains for me to thank you for joining me on the show and sharing some of your experience. Rich, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, Nick. I enjoyed our conversation. Hopefully we'll do this again. Thanks for joining me today. Do you have any better ideas or have you found a small incremental change that's brought about a big improvement in your world? Let's continue the conversation on our hashtag, The Incrementalist, or share with me at DrNick1 on Twitter. You can find more information about the show on our program page at healthcarenowradio.com. And tune in next time to hear my discussions with leaders and innovators from around the globe who've revolutionized their space by using small incremental improvements to achieve their moonshot. I'm Dr. Nick, the incrementalist, and I'm starting a revolution through evolution. <laughs> <laughs>